Luke chapter 18, verses 18 onwards, through the end of the chapter. Follow along in your Bibles. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? By looking at the portions in Matthew and Mark, you understand that this ruler is a young man. In Matthew, we read about him being a young man. So most commonly, this is referred to as the story or the incident of the rich young ruler. So this certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, this is the, when the rich young ruler heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Very quickly, just a statement about this phrase that Jesus uses for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. All sorts of speculation about what that means. Just, it's just a hyperbolic statement. He's just speaking in hyperbole to say it is difficult for someone who is focused on their riches to enter into the kingdom of God. We'll go through that in a little bit. There was already an expression at the time, and particularly among the Persians, that where they said it is difficult for a camel Pardon me, for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. In Jerusalem and in, the, in Israel as such, the camel would have been the most or the largest animal they would have been familiar with. Jesus says it's difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He's just expressing the difficulty of this and we'll get to why that is so. Then those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the son of man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As I said this morning, we're not really going to focus on this portion of scripture because we're coming into the next chapters where we will see this being fulfilled. But I want, to, want you to... Pay attention to just one phrase here or one point here that the disciples did not understand what Jesus was saying. And right at the end of the Gospel of Luke, 
in Luke chapter 24, when it speaks of Jesus after his resurrection, it says that he met the disciples on the road to Emmaus and he explained to them from the scriptures why it was that the Messiah had to come and to suffer and to die and then be resurrected. He explains to them. So here, when Jesus is telling the disciples these things, they don't understand it. And even after his resurrections, they don't fully get it. But he explains it to them. And we'll get to that when we get to Luke 24. But here, I just want to make you aware or to think about the fact that the illumination of the scriptures, the fact that the prophecies and the word of God is given to us, the fact that we can understand it is only if God reveals himself to us. In our own, we can't comprehend this. It's tough. It, we, we don't get it. But when God opens the scriptures to us, when he opens his word to us, when he tells us why the prophets said what they did and how that was fulfilled, we say, this, this is truth. This is the way. This is life to me. So, continuing on. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. When we were in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, we were speaking about gratitude and we were talking about the 10 lepers, nine of whom went on their way, even after they were healed, one who returned to praise God and to thank him for having received this healing. And at that point, as we were talking about that, we talked about faith having healed and faith having been received, right, or the fruit of that, or the result of that. And at that time, we talked about this blind man. We made this reference at that time to say this blind man, Bartimaeus, we know his name from the other scriptures in Mark chapter 10, that he was also a person whose faith heals him. Jesus speaks of that in that way, and he expresses his praise and thanksgiving, his gratitude to Jesus. So again, this is a redundant passage in that sense or a redundant story or example in that sense meant to reinforce for us the importance of giving thanks, the importance of worshiping Jesus, the importance of exercising faith, that we would come to Jesus and he would say, what do you want me to do for you? As if he doesn't know. But we would exercise faith and say, Lord, I want you to heal me. I believe that you can do this. And Jesus says, okay, according to what you have believed, let it be. And here he is, that this healing takes place. But this morning, we're, as I said, we're paying attention to verses 18 through 30 and this interaction between this rich young ruler and Jesus. So this morning, I've structured the sermon as responses to three questions. Question number one, what are you looking for in this world and consequently in eternity? Question number two, how do you think you'll get what you're looking for? 
And question number three, what does God say about your quest? Those are the three questions, and here are the responses, or here's what we can consider. Question one, what is most everyone in the world looking for? Well, most everyone in the world, in general, is looking for a good life. And it matters then how you define a good life. The world's definition goes like this. The good life refers to a state, a, a, a desirable state of being, of, of existing, that is primarily characterized by a high standard of living and or the adherence to ethical and moral laws. In its two different expressions, this is according to the world, Living the good life can either be expressed through an abundant, luxurious lifestyle full of material belongings and or the attempt to live life in accordance with the ethical, moral, legal, and religious laws of one's country or culture or choosing. As such, in its ideal fulfillment, the world will tell you that the good life can be understood as the quest for wealth, material possessions or luxuries, and the quest to create a meaningful, worthwhile, honest existence. Right? This is how the world will sort of talk about it. Greek philosophers, and we have a record of the Greek philosophers as such, but maybe you know many other people before that trying to figure out what's the meaning of life and what, what does a good life look like? And, you know, other philosophers afterwards through the centuries and, you know, all of people around you today. I mean, everybody has an opinion, right, about how you can live a good life. It can all be summed up in these kinds of ways. One is uh, that you would live a life of pleasure. And when I say life of pleasure, I mean that you would live a life that emphasizes subjective experiences. In this view, the, 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 the person who is living a good life is happy. You know, and it's in our constitution even. Right? Pursuit of happiness. You know, and that we would feel good. And that our happy life will consist of many feel-good experiences. Right? It's a good life. You know. And no complaints. I was happy. I had all these good things. Another way to think about a good life is as a moral life. You live as a good person. You're courageous, you're honest, you're trustworthy, you're kind, you're selfless. Now all of this without God, of course. But you're generous, you're helpful, you're loyal, you're principled, you know, and so on. You, you live a morally upright life. And then a third category would be where you live what you could refer to as a fulfilled life. You have a bucket list, and you have checked off everything on your bucket list. By the time you die, you say, you know, I've had a pretty good life. I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty fulfilled. Uh, and it's been pretty meaningful. I've done good for others. I've done good for myself, and I've done good for others. It's, pretty, it's been a pretty fulfilling life, right? And by the way, I was uh, at home, we had this organic flower, and on the, on the side it said, live an organic life. I thought, ah, 
good life, live an organic life. Huh? Live an eco-friendly life. Live a life that is, you know, devoted to social justice. So many different ways that the world will say to you, how can you live a good life? These are all the things that you can go after. You can pursue. That can be value and, you know, virtue and health, you know, maintain your health and have friends and social circles and, you know, some prosperity, you know, that you can, that you can leave a legacy, whatever. And family, oh, yeah, family. So the world will come up with all sorts of stuff in these ways. And most people, even deeply religious, so pious people, would largely agree that if you could achieve both the subjective and objective outcomes of managing money appropriately, morality, meaning, and personal fulfillment, hey, that's a pretty good life. The rich young ruler had the first expression of the good life, of this definition of good life. He had that. He was very wealthy. Doesn't say he was well off. You know, he, he had, well, you know, he, was, he had what he needed. It says he was very wealthy. He was looking to add the second expression. He was looking to live ethically, morally, religiously, in such a way that he could inherit eternal life. So that brings us to the second question. How do most people think that they can find the good life? Most people believe that they can achieve a good life by their good works. If whatever your definition of a good life, if I do good, I'm doing good works consistently, as best as I can, you know, I have some lapses, but hey, if I can do this pretty consistently, for the most part, 90%, you know, something, well, maybe even 60%, that's good. Okay? The rich young ruler, he was pleased. He was proud to say that he had kept all the commandments since he was a boy. Seven, ever since he was accountable for his own actions, he had done the right thing. He was a good man. He had done good things. His desires, he, you know, I mean, he's coming to Jesus and saying, well, he's not asking for more wealth. He's not asking for power. He says, how do I inherit eternal life? His desires are good. He wanted to do the right thing. But you see, the rich young ruler wasn't really asking Jesus a question. He wasn't really saying, what should I do? You know, mind you, he is saying, what should I do? But he's not really asking, what should I do? He was wanting Jesus to reassure him that he was already on the right path. He was wanting Jesus to say, you're doing everything well. Surely, this good teacher could see that he deserved a good reward for his good works. That's what he wanted. He was wanting Jesus to say, well done. Since, since you were a young boy, that's, that's pretty impressive. That's good. 
Keep it up. Keep going. And then one day when you die or I return, you'll be with me in eternity. That's what he was wanting. Jesus didn't fulfill that expectation. And we'll get to that. But you know, most people hold the same beliefs as this rich young ruler. They feel that they have been doing good works that merit them a reward. Reward that is both temporal in the world, in this life, and eternal in the life hereafter. They come to God. People come to God not to hear what God has to say to them, but for God to hear what they have to say. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, he's not really looking to Jesus to say, what, what do you say? He's looking to tell Jesus, look at what I have done. This is what I want to say to you. Now, isn't that good? So what did Jesus say to the young ruler? That brings us to question three. What does Jesus, what does God say about how we can achieve a good life? God says, there's only one who is good. Let me, let me make a point about this because when you start to hear this and you, you've been in church long enough and you've heard enough messages about your goodness and not your goodness and you know the goodness of God and so on, your first thought is, oh yeah, nothing good in me. All my goodness, all my righteousness is as filthy rags, right? But let me be very clear. The Bible does not say that God does not want us to do good works. In fact, he commands us to do good. Jesus never questioned the rich young ruler's statement of what he had done since he was a boy. He didn't say to him, you're lying. He didn't say, you haven't kept the commands. He didn't say that. In fact, time and time again, the Bible shows us that God is pleased with the righteousness of his saints or the good works or good deeds of his saints. In fact, in Hebrews 11, we read about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Samson, David, Samuel, others, a whole host of folks who did good things. Right? right at the beginning of our study in Luke, we read about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke chapter 1 verse 6 says, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. God is pleased with the works that were done out of faith or the works that are done out of faith. These are good works generated from the work of God's own spirit in our hearts. They're not perfect works. Our work is always tainted by sin and flesh and world and all this but the works that God is working in us, they are the works of God's own sons and daughters and he delights in them. That's what the Bible says. God himself is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Hebrews 13, 21 says. So God's delight in the works of his people is not 
a recipe for pride. It's not, oh, I need to be humble. I should not speak about, or I should not consider, or I should not think about what I'm doing as good works. No, if you're being led by the Spirit, if you're being obedient to God, if you're fulfilling the will of God, if you're doing those good works, those good deeds, they are, in fact, seen by the Lord and responded to as a tremendous and much-needed encouragement. He says, keep doing it. Keep going. In fact, when he speaks about the Pharisees, when Jesus speaks about the Pharisees, he says, you should not give up the things that they are doing. They fast and they give and they tithe and they do all these things. Don't give up those things, but understand what the truth is or what the heart is or what you really need to focus on in terms of knowing God, not just being self-righteous. So same kind of thing that Jesus is speaking about here, that it is necessary for us to be doing that which pleases the, God, uh, pleases the Lord. So the big difference here and the contrast that Jesus is revealing to this rich young ruler is that the rich young ruler's good works, his observance of the law, all his righteous acts cannot get him eternal life. These self-righteous acts, similar to the self-righteous prayer of the Pharisee we read about just a few verses before in Luke 18, we're reading about the Pharisee standing there, and, and the righteousness that is referred to in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, the righteousness that are as filthy rags, these things we have to understand is what Jesus is speaking against. How can we know that the rich young ruler was self-righteous? Because we read in Luke that in Luke chapter 12 when we talked about possessions, Jesus had warned, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Here, when the rich young ruler is confronted by Jesus and Jesus says to him, one thing you lack, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. The Bible says that he was very sad because he was very wealthy. The rich young ruler's possessions had so completely possessed him that he was unwilling to give them up to follow Jesus. That's what Jesus is speaking about. That was the self-righteousness that was in him. What Jesus said to the rich young ruler, by the way, is not a general command. It's not a sacrament of the faith. It's not, you have money, sell it. I mean, give it away. You have possessions, sell it. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying to this rich young ruler who specifically was possessed by his possessions, sell what you have. Give it away. Come and follow me. Don't go in this path and think that it's going to lead to eternal life. Come off this path and come here and follow me. So there was a stark contrast that Jesus is trying to go after. There was this difference that needed to take place. So, God's works in us that are achieved through the Holy Spirit, these are the works that are in those that have been regenerated in Christ Jesus. And those kinds of good works stand in contrast 
to the goodness of those who have not been regenerated. Do the things that people do who don't know God, are they good? Yeah, there's lots of good things that people are doing. There's lots of ways that they're caring for others and trying to be responsible and you know, take care of things that, that are not even in their life directly, but they're, you know, they have a passion and a cause and they're doing these things. Are they good? Yeah. But without God, these good things, these good works cannot get you to eternity or eternal life with God. It doesn't get you saved from sin. It isn't sufficient to be righteousness for you. And so, question for us then, what are the good works that God empowers us by his Holy Spirit to fulfill? In Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, it says, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think good thoughts. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, your desires, your passions. Set them right. Make sure that they are good. But you know what should be abundant, abundantly clear from these and many other similar scriptures is that we cannot perform these good works ourselves. We just can't do it. You may do it for a little bit. You may even do it in some areas fairly consistently. But to do this in all areas, to be good in our thinking, to be good in our passions and desires of the heart, to be good in our actions, to be good in our relationships, you're going you're gonna to wear out pretty fast if you try to do all of that. Very quickly. So the difficulty that we face in trying to be good in ourselves, that's the statement that Jesus is then making and to the rich young ruler and he makes to us. What is impossible with man is possible with God. The impossibility that Jesus is referring to is our ability to be good. The impossibility that Jesus is referring to is our, is, is our inability to find anyone or anything that is good apart from God. He's saying, look, you, you just can't do this. You can't find this. You can't do this. In verse 19, Luke 18, verse 19, when Jesus says, why do you call me good? I mean, the, the, this is what the, the young, rich young ruler does, right? None of the other rulers or Pharisees or others at the time were saying it quite like this. They didn't do this. And they don't typically, the Jews would not have typically called a man good in that sense. But this ruler comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I 
do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? There is no one that is good except God alone. What Jesus is saying is that if you call him good, you're calling him God. If you call him good, you are recognizing that Jesus is God. The rich young ruler may not have understood the significance of what he was saying, which is why Jesus challenges him. That Jesus pushes back. You know, in other, in other circumstances, when, when Peter, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the Messiah. And Jesus says to him, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. How do you even recognize that Jesus is God? How do you, even in, in, in spite of whether you call him good or not, it's when you have that revelation of God. That's when you understand the truth. That's when you comprehend what Jesus is saying. So when Jesus speaks to this rich young ruler, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. So what he's saying is, you call me good, then you're calling me God. If you call me good, then you recognize me as God and you understand that the only source of goodness is God. The only way you can be good is if you're correctly and rightly related to God. Jesus is speaking very clearly of his divinity and of his provision, even though it's not all spelled out. Right? Don't miss that. That's what Jesus is doing when he says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Right? And if he's only the source, if he, Jesus, is the only source of goodness, then are we willing to abandon everything to follow him? That's the message of the gospel. When you find that pearl of great price, are you willing to sell everything to go after this? When you find the good teacher, are you willing to give up everything else and follow him. That's what Jesus is asking. What is the understanding that you have of goodness? Because if you realize that it's me, if you understand that I am goodness personified, if you realize that you can't be good without me, then that's what you will pursue. That's what you will be willing to go after no matter what. No matter how many other definitions you have, of what the good life is. You will say, I'm willing to give all that up for the sake of knowing Jesus. That's what Paul says. He says, I consider all these things as rubbish. Rubbish. For the sake of knowing the Lord. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At, that, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Think of that definition of good life or whatever is in your mind. Both the objective and the subjective. 
all the things that would affect us in our inner man and the things that affect us in our outer, they're all fulfilled in Jesus, in God. He's the one who says, you come to me and I'll show you the path of life. In my presence, when you dwell with me and in my presence, you will have fullness, fulfillment. You will be content. You will be joyful. You will be at peace. And at my right hand are pleasures evermore. You want to live a life of pleasure? The greatest pleasure that you can have are the pleasures that God would give you. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Familiar verse. It says, and we know that those, for those who love God, all things work together for good. You want the good life? You want things to go good? How's life? How are you doing? Good. It is for those who love God, who know God, who are called according to his purpose. When the Bible speaks about calling, it's not speaking about just hearing. It's speaking about following, obeying. The disciples heard Jesus say, come and follow me, and they followed him. There were many others, many, who heard Jesus say, come and follow me, but did not. We have specific instances, but we know of multitudes who really did not. So here, when it talks about those who are called according to his purpose, we're speaking about those who will walk in his ways. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the Bible says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In his presence is goodness. He brings us into his presence and makes us righteous. It enables us to know his call and purpose and experience the goodness of God. And then he sustains us until the completion of all things. It's all God, start to finish. There is nothing in the middle there where you can say, oh, but you know, for a few years there, I, you know, I was pretty good. I, I contributed into this, right? God did 99%, but at least 1%, I did that. We want that, right? We, we want that, you know. We want that recognition. We want that acknowledgement. We want somebody to say, good job. Good job. When Jesus, and in terms of what he's saying, is that when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when we are filled with and led by the Holy Spirit, when we obey willingly and cheerfully, when we humbly submit, when we serve selflessly, when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the Lord is faithful to make us good, to keep us good, and to give us of himself, to give us a good life here in this earth and eternal life with him in heaven. 
Don't misunderstand. I'm not at all saying that you won't have suffering, pain, tribulations. I'm not saying that. A good life doesn't mean that you're free from all of that. The good life means that you are in Christ. And in him, none of those things matter. You're able to say, come what may, I know whose I am. I know what he has done for me. I know who sustains me. I am good. You know, this morning, as we always do, we want to respond to the word of God. And we want to say, Lord, how do I come to you and understand and apply this word? And you know, this rich young ruler did one good thing. He came seeking the good teacher. Now he came seeking for some, maybe some selfish reasons. Maybe some misguided sort of approach. Maybe he was hoping for something that this good teacher would tell him that would validate what he was doing. But at least he came seeking the good teacher. And I encourage us that this morning we would respond similarly. We would say, Lord, we want to come seeking the good teacher. God, our teacher. God, who gives us the Holy Spirit, who comes to teach us, to instruct us, to fill us, to reveal to us his will. And then this morning, if you're listening and you haven't really been experiencing this goodness of God, if you haven't been understanding what the Bible means when it says this, or you've never really thought about this, confronted it, dealt with it, and you are spending your time striving very hard, working really hard to live a good life, to make a good life for yourself or your children, to, to really, you know, to say, I, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to put all that I have into this. And you have been finding that to be frustrating, unfruitful, unsuccessful. I want to tell you, it's not because the desire itself is bad. It's that you're looking in the wrong place. You've got to go seek the good teacher. You've got to find him. You've got to throw yourself at his feet. And you've got to say, Lord, what do I do? Not what do I do. What do I do to respond to you? For what you have done, how you've given life, the path that you have shown, how do I come into this? Lord, what do I do? The emphasis is not on me and myself and my actions and my good works. The emphasis is on Jesus, the good teacher, the good, the only one who is good. That's why I come to him. And so, every week, we want to also say, how should we apply what we're hearing? I read off some things in terms of what the Bible says about doing good. I encourage you, I challenge you, go and read the scriptures. Do a, do a word search for good in the Bible. Do a Google search. It comes up. All sorts of scriptures come up. Read them. Look at them, consider them. Ask the Holy Spirit, what is it that I need to do personally? How should I respond? And the response is very simple. We apply by obeying the commands of the Lord, 
by doing good works. We come to him and we say, Lord, I, I, I humbly and I sincerely obey you. I come into your presence. I apply the word by doing good works. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the story of this rich young ruler. Lord, all the things that it reminds us of and teaches us, we thank you for that. And we pray that this morning, Lord, we will be people who will respond to your word by seeking you, by pursuing you, by looking to you, by recognizing that you are the only one who is good. And there, because you are good, Lord, that you can cause us to become like you, like so that, Lord, we can experience your goodness in us. Lord, your transformation of us. So that, Father, the only goodness that we can show to somebody else would come from you. It would come from the overflow of your goodness in our lives. Your, Lord, pouring out of yourself into us so that we may then bless others, so that we may be good to others. Father, I thank you that when the world is calling out and pursuing the good life, and defining it in all sorts of ways. Father, I thank you that you give us something that is so much more meaningful, both for this life on this earth and for eternity. So much more relevant, so much more complete. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you, Lord, that you don't just leave us to our material possessions and say, that's good, that's enough. Thank you, Lord, that you don't just leave us to our mental well-being, our, our soul, our, our intellect, our will, our emotions to be good, to be healthy and say, yep, that's good. But no, Lord, thank you that you care for us, spirit, soul, and body. And when we are united with you in eternity, thank you, Lord, that you address all of that and we find our goodness, our good life in you. Father, when we go out from here today, I pray this word will continue to resonate in our hearts, in our minds, and we will consider what's the, what are the good things that I am doing by the prompting and leading and direction of the Holy Spirit. But what are the other so-called or perceived good things that I may be doing in my own strength or to try to please people or to gain the favor of people or to gain acknowledgement or acceptance or to gain a reward. What are those good things that I may be doing that, Lord, are actually not glorifying you? Help me, Lord. Grant me grace. Help me to see all of that as you see it and to respond to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.